gentlemen welcome to another episode of music the lifeblood extra special episode this one this show is our third and our final installment in our short series focusing on sam hayne and its very prolific members that came and went over the years if for those of you not in the know sam hayne was a awesome punk slash death slash goth rock band in the early 80s formed and fronted by glenn danzig himself after his tenure with the Misfits had ended in 1983. This show is focusing on original Sam Hain and later original Danzig bassist Erie Vaughn. For those of you who don't know who Erie is, Erie has an amazing resume. With Sam Hain, he played on the albums Initium, November Coming Fire, Live 85-86, Final Descent, and the Unholy Passion EP. And later in Danzig, he played on Danzig 1, Danzig 2, Lucifuge, Danzig 3, How the Gods Kill, and Danzig 4. He's also had an impressive body of work as a solo artist with his first album, Uneasy Listening, also The Blood and the Body, Bad Dream Number 13, Spider Cider, and his most recent solo album, Kinda Country, which is kind of country. He also is a very, very prolific photographer. You can find his works compiled in an awesome book he put out a couple years ago called Misery Obscura, detailing in photo at the time he spent as a young person with the Misfits, playing in Samhain, playing in Danzig, and just all kinds of other goodies uh, that have came and went over his time on the road. He's also a very active painter. So check out this guy's stuff. He's a renaissance man. He's done all kinds of cool stuff. He sheds a lot of light into the the Sam Hain, Misfits, Danzig mythos with a lot of really cool stories. Now, before we get on to the show, I want to make sure that I encourage everyone to please check us out on iTunes, Stitcher. You can also find our feed at podomatic.com. We're on Facebook if you want to reach out and talk to us. And we're also on Tumblr. I really like Tumblr because it's kind of artsy fartsy. So check us out on there. All right. No more hold up. Let's get on to the show. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Mr. Erie Vaughn. On the phone, I am joined by punk rock metal icon Erie Vaughn. Erie, thanks for being on the show, man. Problem, Justin. Glad to be here. Awesome. As a life long, you know, kind of member of the fiend community that I am, you know, my roots go back to the Misfits, obviously, Sam Hain, Danzig, you know, and I've followed a lot of musicians that are kind of in that pool of people. And there's a lot of division amongst the fiend community over the the Danzig camp and the only camp. And you kind of being a uh, a pivotal player you know, in, in this long legacy of stuff. In your opinion, what do you think causes that division? A little easier back back when, you know, before Barry had gone on to do his version of Misfits for, I don't know how many years now, forever, 15 years, maybe longer, I don't know. Um, there, was, there was people who were like, oh, I only like Sam Hain. I only like Danzig. I like the Misfits and Danzig. You know, I like the Misfits and Sam Hain. Um, I think they... They like Jared because he's he's a very friendly guy. He's good with the people, you know. Um, he he takes time to do pictures and autographs and all the stuff that we always did. 
and you know he's a nice guy. You know, um, it's just and they get to they get to hear the old Misfits songs that Glenn doesn't usually play. You know, I mean he only plays this like say six or eight songs he does with Doyle that he's been doing for ten years. I guess sure and. Uh, so maybe that's it. I don't know. Or maybe, you know, because they went and saw Jerry and he was real nice to them and signed photos, uh, took photos and stuff. And maybe that, since the last time they saw Glenn, maybe he wasn't in that kind of mood and maybe it was bad. So it's probably all based on personal experience. I can't really see them picking the the, the new uh, Misfit stuff over the old Misfit stuff. You know, that's just my opinion. Sure. So where where do you fall? You know, do you fall on a specific side of the fence, or do you just I'm making it a point to Johnny Cash and I walk the line? Um, well, I, I still talk to Jerry. You know, um, I hear from him every once in a while. Still talk to Doyle. Still talk to Bobby. Um, hear from some of the other guys that you know. I talk uh, to Frank. Uh, played on Static Age. Sure. You know, we're all in like this big fraternity, even if we've never hung out or haven't really met each other much you know it's kind of like well you were in one of the bands you know we're all from the same neighborhood that kind of stuff so we're all friends sort of by proxy you know and uh i just when it comes to you know i think between glenn and jerry you know glenn's keeping the music alive on the dancing side and doing the sam haynes stuff now and again and some misfit stuff jerry's you know carrying the torch doing what he thinks is right you know as the misfits so i'm as far as I'm concerned, they can do whatever they want. You know? <laughs> it's fine. And if I happen to, you know, be in town or they're coming through here or whatever, I might go see, I went to Doyle a couple of months ago. I might go see Jerry if it's convenient, you know. Um, and then, you know, well, I don't go see Glenn and the guys because I don't feel like I'm welcome, so I don't go. <laughs> you know? So that's no big deal. But I, I support everybody, and I think it's good because it's, I think in the stuff that I do too, I'm also helping to preserve the legacy, you know, sure. my, my part, you know, like putting out books and, and doing conventions and signing people's old stuff and telling old stories and things like that. So I think it's good for everybody to, to just keep going because we got to keep turning the kids over, you know, sure. the young kids to, to, um, to keep the thing going because we're all going to cash in, you know, at some point. <laughs> so, you know, we got to get the kids, you got to get them young, get them, you know, interested in the music and starting their own bands and doing, you know, just keeping the stuff alive. So I think it's all fine, you know. Uh, the the Misfits box set that came out in, what was it, 1995, you wrote the linear notes. for was in... like 97. Oh, okay, 97. okay. Uh, you wrote the linear notes, you know, on the inside of it, and the very last kind of paragraph is, you know, enjoy this music, you know, and at the, and at the very end of your misery obscura, your photo, your photograph book, you have a little tagline at the very end of the notes at the end of it that says anywhere there's kids, you know, picking up guitars and basements and, you know, trying to form bands and things like that. Do you feel like, you know, as kind of like an elder statesman, of this community, do you feel like that that kind of thing that that passion to enjoy the music, that passion to kind of pioneer and break new ground, is still alive today? Oh yeah, for sure. And it's you know, I get the question all the time about when you know what you think about the internet as opposed to you know uh, the old style of going to a record store or even ordering records, you know, CDs by mail or whatever. 
I think it's it's a great time because you know that's how everybody gets their music now, and you can record at home, like you know has been done since time began, and put out your songs on a website, which there are a lot of websites to put songs on and albums or whatever, and even your own site, and you can go out and promote yourself and do your own thing. You don't need to direct the company. You don't even have to make CDs anymore, you know. So I think it's a great time. And, yeah, of course, there's, you know, the cream rises to the top. There's always going to be some good guys out there, good bands, good guys and girls, you know, uh, doing their own thing. And I think it's great. You know, because otherwise, like when I was growing up, you had to be Led Zeppelin or somebody to get a record contract. And so everybody felt like, well, we can play covers and make some money at local clubs. Or we can put, you know, record our own songs or whatever. But what are we going to do with them? You know, and, and then people would come to me and say, well, how did you put out a record? And I was like, well, you know, you just go out and do it. You know, you just spend the money, you record, you 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 get it all done, and then you try to sell it, you know. So we had, we used to go down to local stores, stores in New York, and say, hey, we got a new record, you know, you know, will you buy it? <laughs> so, <laughs> so now they don't have to go through that shit, you know, send, send boxes of records to the distributors and wait 90 days to get paid, and if they don't sell, they send them back, you know. I mean, that's, that sucks, you know. I want to go back. You mentioned, uh, I think the word you used was fraternity talking about just kind of the, the whole pool of people involved in kind of uh, the quote-unquote fiend community. Uh, yeah. you, you go way back with with Glenn, with Jerry, with Doyle, you know, with Steve. You know, you guys are all from Lodi, or at least in that right. area. You know Doyle from school. You guys grow up together. I asked Steve, you know, uh, a couple weeks ago, you know, Steve, tell me about, tell me about what it was like to go, to walk into the garage and listen to the Misfits play and things like that. And it was a very, very like major moment for Steve. It's, it's had this almost lifelong impact on him. I'm just curious, are you kind of in the same boat with him? You know, what, what was it like with, with the, with that, with the looking glass of, you know, 30 some years later? Yeah, I really didn't know anything about the Misfits and hadn't really gotten into punk rock when I was like, you know, Doyle and I had lunch together like every day in like eighth grade. We sat across from each other and had was, like six or eight people per table or something. So we used to hang out and talk and stuff or whatever. One day he comes in and he starts drawing like on our, we used to cover our books in brown paper, you know, or school books. So he's drawing and he's, telling me about this band, the Sex Pistols, that he just, his brother just turned to Bronto and he's telling me what they do and he's drawing these little stick figures of people like throwing up on stage or whatever, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so we were, he, he, he starts telling me about this stuff and my at the same time, my sister's just starting to buy punk rock records like the Pistols, the Flash, uh, the Ramones, like she played me my first Ramones song. So this stuff all kind of happened at the same time and then, when we get to high school, which was like, we graduated June of like 78, eighth grade, and then we went to high school in September, so it was still 78, and by like maybe a couple of months, 79, I don't know, he, he said, you know, my brother's in a band, you know, called the Misfits, and you know, they got some records out, so, so he just brought me like a bunch of the old 45s and stuff, and 
And um, then, he, you know, I said, well, you got anything else? And he says, oh, yeah, I've got a whole bunch of stuff. And I gave him an eight-track tape. Um, that's how far back it was. And he recorded, like, all the Static Age stuff, all the MSP sessions that came out from 12 Hits from Hell, you know, okay. and, like, all this ultimate shit, you know. So I, that's what I listened to because, you know, I, I had an 8-track player in the basement where my drums were set up so I could just listen and play along and stuff. But I didn't really get, you know, to know Jerry and Glenn until, until later. You know, like Jerry would go to the football games because he used to play football, so he'd go watch his two brothers play. So we, you know, knew each other. But, you know, maybe a little basketball down at the park. You know, he'd come around and, you know, we'd play together or whatever. But I didn't really, you know, get to know him or Glenn until I did the pictures, which was like 81, I think, you know, so. But, yeah, I mean, it, they were cool. And plus, you're 15 years old, and there's these guys, and they're playing in the city, and they got a band, and they look really cool. They're writing their own songs, putting out their own records, you know, touring and stuff. It was pretty cool to see that this stuff could be done. And they were doing it, so why can't I, you know? Or why can't anybody? And it was just cool. They were always fun to be around. You know, they're, they're older. So it was kind of like that thing, you know, when you're a freshman, you know, you kind of look up to the seniors or better athletes or they're cool. They got a cool car, or, you know, hot chicks or whatever. So it was that kind of thing. You know, when it came to like the music and all that and like going to see him play. Yeah, it was, it was pretty eventful, but I was mostly busy. Do, you know, taking pictures and stuff. But yeah, I was a fan and I still am, but it wasn't like, oh my God. It was just kind of made a lot of sense to me. It's like, we can just, I can do this too. I can write songs and, and record them and, you know, get some guys together. So, you know, it was just like a good example to follow. Kind of like, really? You could put out your own records? Okay, great. You know? So, so let's, talk, let, let, let's talk about Rosemary's Babies. You know, yeah, you're... well, I was writing songs before that. You know, I was influenced by the, you know, the stuff Glenn was doing, you know, uh, you know, vocally, lyrically, whatever, and the whole mystic stuff. And so I started writing stuff, and I'd written poetry or just written stuff down since, like, seventh, eighth grade. So, yeah, I was writing a bunch of shit, but it was also mostly derivative, you know, <laughs> sounded like a lot of the, you know, the, the mystic-type bands that have come out over the years, you know. So I knew that wasn't going to work. And then, you know, got into the hardcore scene, and it was com sort of completely different from what I was used to when it came to the Misfits. And just knew, knew this guy from high school and then had another friend and just said, well, let's get together and started working on songs that about, you know, stuff that we were influenced by that period, you know, the faster stuff and right. some of the UK punk and stuff like that. As a uh, as a fan of this stuff, you know, you you always hear about you know the name just Lodi, New Jersey, Lodi, New Jersey. It's 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 almost been like this. It's perceived as like this hellish kind of place where they put stuff in the water that only makes people do creepy things, you know, because we have you know uh, morning noise. Rosemary's Babies, The Misfits, The Sam Hain, uh, they all come from this same place. You know, was was there any kind of feeling, you know, in the air at that time? Like, you know, we're de we definitely, we're sticking to this kind of macabre sort of theme. Or was it just, it just kind of happened, was it an organic thing? 
No, well, it was, you know, Florida wasn't exactly a real, it was kind of a tough place at certain points. And there was a lot of, you know, people were dying, people were going to jail. Um, you know, I thought, you know, that it was fine because I missed a lot of that stuff. But I heard stories and things. I don't think it was a conscious effort for any of us. I mean, I'm pretty sure that Steve wanted to be in the Misfits all along, so that's why Morning Noise was more like a horror band. Hmm. And um, and I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll be in the Misfits eventually, but, you know, right now I'm, I'm doing this. But I liked, and my friends that I hung around with, the guys that I was working on music with, were just not happy people and were just writing about stuff that was kind of, you know, I don't know, brutal, you know, horror-inspired, I don't know. But I don't think anybody just said, yeah, well, we want to be like that, or we want to be spooky. It was just kind of people that we were. And that's why we were all friends, because we all liked kind of the same stuff and had sort of a similar image. I, I'm not in the outlook. And I guess just from being in the same neighborhood, maybe it was in the water, I don't know. <laughs> what is it? Uh, uh, Steve told me about, uh, what's the hot dog place in Lodi? Um Thanks. Hanks hot dogs, right? Maybe it's uh, maybe it's in the hot Hanks dogs. Flex. Hanks Franks. <laughs> yeah, I was wearing a shirt the other day. That's awesome. Nice. It's, yeah, it's, all, it's right across from Lodi Pizza, which is our favorite place. It's on Route 46 in Lodi, people. We'll get Hanks <laughs> chili dogs and then go to Lodi Pizza and get a slice. Some of the guys from uh, high school still work there. That's awesome. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's great. Every time I go, I go to like two or three different pizza places. I go to Hanks, you know, anywhere, um, you know, there's little Italian restaurants and stuff, anything that's still there. But, you know, definitely Hanks and Lodi Pizza every time. But, <laughs> it's it's got to yeah, be. Yeah, and that was right across from the high school. So we could sneak out for lunch and run to uh, either one of those places and get back before we got in trouble. You know? <laughs> it's, it's, it's something in the food, I'm telling you. Okay, so yeah, uh, the, the, misfit, the Misfits come and go. 1983, uh, the the band breaks up for whatever reason. Uh, Glenn decides, okay, moving on to something else. Uh, he comes to you and he says, "What?" It was kind of a slow boil, you know. Like we were becoming better friends, uh, hanging out more. Um, I was hanging out at his house. We, you know, I was driving him into the city, you know, things like that. Um, just just hanging out, going to movies. Whatever. So we were talking on the phone, and we started talking about, like, the problems we were having with, with our bands. Like, um, you know, when you start a band, everybody's, like, gung-ho. And then little by little, people stop showing up for rehearsal, or um, they're like, um, you know, why don't we play like this? Or, I'm, I'm into this, why don't we do some stuff like that, you know? And then little by little, you start going, uh, yeah, but I want to do, you know, this is what we started out to do. I want to I keep going. You know, everybody decides they want to start playing metal or something. Then you, you all change and you get new guys or whatever. But that was the kind of vibe. He was not happy. He wanted to go in a different direction, I think. And maybe the stuff that he was writing that he thought wouldn't fit or maybe they couldn't pull it off the way he wanted it, you know. So it was just like that. And then he told me they were doing a show. Oh, I think Boston or something, and I couldn't go. Somebody in the family died, and I had to stay and go to the funeral. And then he told me how that went, and he was just like, I'm, I'm going to tell the guys, I'm, you know, I'm quitting the band. 
we got like one more show in Detroit, and after that, I'm gonna come back and start the new, you know, work on the new band. And I was just like, sure, no problem, you know. And I was still doing Rosemary's Babies, and that was kind of we were still recording, but you know, interest was waning, you know, stuff like that. Guys had jobs, you couldn't really commit so much, and um, so it was kind of like, yeah. So I kept playing drums and writing songs, you know, for that, and uh, and. The, the second bass player, Bruce, for Rosemary's Babies, was like, ah, you should go with Glenn, you know, like, it's going to go somewhere, you know, if you, if you guys get together. So he said, it's a smart move, you should go with Glenn, because, you know, it, it could turn into a career or whatever. And I was just mm-hmm. like, yeah, I think so, too. Plus, when you're a musician, you want to play with those guys you can. That's the whole deal. It's like, whoever you can play with, who, like, advance yourself as a musician or, you know, you're in your career, I guess, that's what you want to do. So Glenn, you know, Glenn was Glenn. He wrote great songs, had a great voice, had already done all this stuff, and could I could learn from him, you know. So I, this was kind of a no-brainer, you know. So I'm curious, uh, stylistically, there's there's such a big difference between Earth AD and Initium, the first Sam Hain album. Um, you know, did... The the kind of I guess the kind of writing climate you know the the artistic mood at that at that time you know with with Glenn it's it's always been my understanding that he wanted the Misfits to be a harder band you know was it was it he felt like they were limited on literally what they could do with the material he was bringing or he just I want I want a fresh start I just want I just want to take a left turn and go in a completely different direction. Well, from what I can remember, because um, we never sat down and said, you know, this is it and this is that. It was more like, you know, something here and there. We'd make a comment, you know. But um, he, he, as far as I remember, and he probably still does it, like, he's a songwriter, and I do the same thing. You write a song and you go, oh, that's a pretty good song, but it's not right for me or it's not right for the band that I'm in. Maybe I'll put it aside and I'll use it down the road, maybe for my next band, which I think he was doing that. Like, there's three songs, or two or three songs on Earth AD that he told me he wanted to say for the next band, which, you know, we were doing Sam Hain by that time. So he wanted Blood Feast as a Sam Hain song, Death Comes Ripping, maybe one other. I know those two for sure, but he needed more songs for Earth AD, so we just go down for the missions, you know. Okay. Um, from what I remember him telling me is that those guys were getting more into metal. Like, I think they liked Iron Maiden, and they loved Kiss. Um, so he he was getting into more of the hardcore stuff. Because I remember that summer, uh, I think it was the summer, the, this compilation called This Is Boston, Not L.A. came out, and it had Gang Green on it and Jerry's Kids um, and the FUs. And so we listened to that Gang Green stuff like crazy, and it was like the fastest stuff we'd ever heard. And I think some of that might have leaked in the why Earthy D is a little faster. Okay. You know, but I don't think he wanted to go heavier, because that record's pretty heavy. Um, it's just, I think he wanted to be more serious about the lyrical content, rather than being all about horror movies and stuff. Okay. And like comic booky, because the mistress had that kind of image, you know, like superheroes. And I think he wanted to have, talk about stuff that was like heavier subjects, like religion, you know. And he always read a lot. And I think he wanted to 
turn people on to some of this cool shit that nobody knew about, you know, or a majority of people didn't. And I think it was just a more serious approach. And maybe he wanted to be the one that just called all the shots instead of having to worry about whatever Jerry wanted to do, you know? Okay. All right. So we put, uh, we, we get, uh, the kind of core of Sam Hain put together. Um, there's a little bit of, you know, a little bit of lineup, you know, stuff happening there towards the beginning with Lyle from Minor Threat and Brian Baker. Um, but we settle on, uh, Glenn, Steve, and yourself. You guys go to start working on Initium. Lyle plays guitar. Glenn plays guitar. Do you have, you know, take, take any takeaways from from that time? You know, what what do you remember about the recording of it? You know, what sticks in your mind? Well, the way the story goes is the planning line to record a song, Archangel, that was supposedly written back in the Misfit days that Jerry wanted. I think Jerry wanted Dave Anian from the Dam to sing on. Right. I don't know exactly like what they were going to do with it, or they were just going to give him the song or something, and that never happened. I don't know the exact, you know, because it was, wasn't was like, hey, you know, I never sat down and said, hey, what happened with this? You know, it was like either it happened or it don't happen. That's as far as I was concerned. It was fine either way. Um, so he went and recorded, I think, probably in New York with Al Pike, Reagan Youth on bass, mm-hmm. and he probably played the rest of the instruments. And... Um, at one point, he went over to Steve's house because he had a four-track, and they made a bunch of the background noises and, you know, all kinds of stuff to make the initium track and then blended the, the poetry over it. Um, shit. Now I've lost my transport. What were you what were we <laughs> Just talking about... <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. My uh, brain just, just doesn't work anymore. Uh, just talking about the initium sessions, you know, uh, what, what oh, you... okay, right, right, yeah. okay. So so anyway, then then it was uh, <laughs> sort of minor threat had broken up, and um, he, I'm assuming he liked the, that band, you know, I mean, everybody did. Right. So he went down to D.C. for like a rehearsal or two with Brian and Lyle, and I think they... I think Brian wanted to do something different or it just wasn't going to gel because those guys, you know, they're, they're really good musicians and stuff and they're not going to sit there and let somebody say, well, play this, play that, you know? Sure. So um, that didn't work. He came back and that's when he, you know, told me, you know, I want to start the band and, you know, I want you to do the band and this, that, and the other thing. And um, so Wild, like, at some point, you know, just came up on the train or whatever and, laid down a few tracks and Lyle tells me that the best stuff that he did didn't make it onto the album and he wishes he had a copy of what he actually played (laughs) (laughs) and I'm like sorry dude I wasn't there I don't know why I wasn't there but so we have that and we originally wanted Glenn and I that this was our plan it was just going to be him and I and we were going to have when we wanted to do a record we bring in a drummer bring in another guitar player and whoever was available play on record and then whoever could go on tour would go on tour but the core band was going to be mean hit and like it was like the Colts you know the Colts had the two guys Ian and uh, and uh, Duffy the other guy and they kept having new bass players new drummers come in and out sure. so I kind of looked at it like that but you can't really work on the songs you know without a full band so it came down to well we need somebody who's in town and you know, Pete was from Rutherford, which was like 10 minutes away. Steve was in Lodi. It was kind of like, well, if you want to move forward, we got to get 
guys that can come to rehearsal every day or every other day. And that's pretty much the way it was, you know, when it comes, even back in the Misfits, you know, like if you were in town and you could play, you might be in the band, you know? So <laughs> it was just kind of a necessity, really, you know, to to do that. And then just, you know, started recording and, you know, that was it. So that you're, tiny you, little studio. As, a, as a bass player, you're relatively fresh at that point. Um, you know, we're talking maybe six months you're playing at that point. Um, what, uh, Pete, I, Pete. I don't remember. We did, we did, we had like, we had 30 days of rehearsal, then we did our first show, and then we did nothing except go on the studio. So we didn't, we really didn't do anything. So it was just rehearsal time and stuff. And, uh, yeah, I was just trying to figure out how to play the bass, where the notes were and stuff, and, you know, I couldn't play, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, the Pete. right attitude, that, you know. I had a I had an interesting comment, um, you know, as as I've been doing research for to to talk to all you guys, um, listening to an interview with London, and London had mentioned, Pete had mentioned, and Steve had mentioned to me that at rehearsals, you guys just it was ape shit. You go bonkers, you know. You treat it almost like it was a show, um, you know. And I'm a musician too. I played in bands and things like that. Generally at rehearsals you're pretty focused on just making sure that the music is going the way that it needs to be going. And then I picture the four of you guys just really going for it at just a rehearsal. You know, I just curious, you know, where, where does that come from? Why, why? Well, I can, I can speak for myself and maybe a little bit. Glenn Glenn has a lot of, you know, he still is. You see, if you go see him, he's still a maniac, you know, and he still goes crazy, and that was part of the thing. The music just made us nuts, and plus, I was already nuts. We were listening to Pat Braids and all this fast stuff. Me and my friends, we would just go crazy. It, we were just we we couldn't control all the energy that we had, and the music just made made us just I don't know. We just went nuts, and that's just the kind of people we are. And we did it even in dancing. We had rehearsals where it was like that, and when we did video shoots. We, we we played every video, every take of every, you know, video, like it was a full-on show, you know, because we didn't know what take they were going to use, so you can't just be standing there anyway, you know? So, yeah, it was just, it's just part of your personality, basically. Yeah, I don't know too many people who do um, work that way, but once once the songs are all down and you're just really into them, then it's just like, forget it, we're just going to go off and you get the best take you can get, you know? Pete, Pete had mentioned to me that, uh, you know, rehearsals, at times it could be very scary because Glenn would literally sit there in front of you and just watch you watch you play. You know, at that... I was, he was listening mostly. I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't intimidated. If I couldn't play a part, I'd say, well, what do you want? You know, and <laughs> if I couldn't get it, I'd hand him the bass and he'd go, no, I want this. I'm like, oh, okay. You know, then I just played. And he would never say another word about it. You know, because sometimes the timing would be a little... Everybody's got an internal timing, you know. Sure, sure. And if you start playing against your natural timing, you can't always pick up where the beat is or where to go. Or, and it happens with all musicians. So, yeah, I mean, the, you know, Steve and Pete were a little bit more timid than I was, you know. And there's a lot of pressure uh, from Glenn on drummers and guitar players, you know. 
you could see how many drummers and players were in the Misfits, you know. So sure. um, it was always something he was searching for. So I didn't have to do anything. Hell, I just played eighth notes, you know. Well. So what was the what was the internal uh, kind of chemistry? What was the dynamic between you know the four original guys? You know, did did everyone get along? You know, was it was it harmony or is it just we're kids and we're yeah, just doing? Well, this? I mean, we're, no, we were friendly. It's just I think my personality and Glenn's personality were a little bit closer together. Uh, that we used to pick on the other guys, <laughs> and uh, that could have been one of the reasons Steve quit the band. I don't know, but uh, yeah, I wasn't a real nice guy back then. I didn't turn into a nice guy until much later. <laughs> um, and Glenn, I think Glenn got a kick out of me being such a cunt, you know. And um, and when, when we were on tour, he was driving, and somebody would say something stupid or do something. He would say, "Here, I'm driving." Would you punch him. <laughs> and 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 Pete, Pete was a great guy, um, very laid back, quite a bit different than us, you know. Um, and I used to punch him like every time I saw him. He just had one of those faces. You know, um, but he was really good. He was always, you know, never missed rehearsals. He he was also a mechanic on the road. You know, when the, when the band would break down, go go fix it, go out and see what's wrong with it. And he'd be like, all right, you know. And if he couldn't fix it, then God, we get mad at him, you know. <laughs> but and Steve was he was more quiet. We didn't hang out a lot in high school, you know. And I didn't even know he was into punk rock till like, I don't know, one year towards the end when you could just come in and you didn't have to worry about anything. And he started coming in with his punk rock shirts and maybe dyed his hair or did something. You know, so I didn't even really know him until like maybe the last year or so. Can't remember exactly. Hmm. But uh, he had a car, so that was good. You know, he could get a ride home once in a while. It's it's amazing. It's amazing some of the qualifications that you're saying that it took to be in, like Sam Hain or the Misfits. You just if you got a car or you live in Lodi, New Jersey, you know. Yeah, if you play you play guitar. We need a guitar player. You can you live in you live in a town or you know close to you can get there, and you got a car. Yeah, let's go. You it's, know, it's amazing. And if it don't work out, we'll we'll, we'll try something else. But yeah, like I said, it was definitely convenience, you know. Right. And I had a and I, I had a rehearsed in, so that was probably a big part of me keeping the job, you know, <laughs> because well, if we don't we got nowhere to rehearse because Steve had this little bedroom apartment with his drum set up and I had to sit on the bed and you know, play and uh so that probably helped. But yeah, it was a lot of necessity. Right. <laughs> so when when Steve leaves um, and London comes on, you know, does it, does it change, like, does it change, you know, the, the climate within, within the four guys, within the band? Well, yeah, normally, you know, whenever a new guy joins the band, you know, you usually give him a bunch of shit, you know, for however long and see if he can take it. If he can't take it, he's out, you know, if he can, uh, we'll probably crush his spirit, you know, we'll, we'll go for that first. And, uh, and see if he can hang. Like, if he can hang with us, then that's fine. You know, like, as far as the music came, as long as you could do what we wanted, it wasn't that big a deal. And London had been calling Glenn, because, like, we'd done a show, like, he had promoted a show in Baltimore, and he was a huge fan, and 
you know, from Misfits and Samhain too. And um, so he'd been calling Glenn and saying stuff and been practicing the songs, and he was just waiting for his chance to, to be in the band. And then, then that just happened, and he moved up from Baltimore and got a place in Rutherford, you know, down the street from Pete. And, uh, you know, that was it. But I don't remember it being too, too, too much different. You know, he was a little bit of a different player and was into more of the hardcore stuff um, that I can recall. He loved my threat. Um, but, yeah, it wasn't, it, wasn't that, it wasn't that different. So November Coming Fire, that's uh, to, uh, within, like, a lot of the, at least the fan community that, that I'm active with, a lot of people feel like that's the high watermark for Sam Hain. Uh, you didn't, what was, the, and, and stylistically, again, just like the difference between Earth AD and the first uh, Initium album, November Coming Fire, stylistically, it's quite a departure from what Initium and Unholy Passion was. How did how did you feel about that batch of songs? You know, did did you like oh, the material? That's my favorite uh, record, and just like the it's something about number three. It's my favorite dance record too. The number three. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I think um, I think it was just you know, usually what I noticed over the years was that like if something was got popular or was too much one way or something, Glenn would go back underground and you know what I mean? Like that's why Unholy Passion is so it's so different from the other two records. Mm. You know, and then after doing that, he comes out with these songs that, that seemed a little bit more accessible, a little bit more polished. Um I think it was just the material that he happened to have and probably a few songs that he sat on until the time was right. And by then, you know, we're playing you know, well together, and uh, the songs that uh, London couldn't cut on drums, I would get behind the drums, and we'd be like, "Oh, good, let's see what that happens now." Um, and <laughs> so he played on a couple. He played on like half of the album, and that was interesting. I can even go to the dancey stuff, like when the Mother record after eight years became a hit, which was ridiculous. Then the next record goes back down on the ground, more like Sam Hain. You know, number four was more like a Sam Hain record. You mm-hmm. know, and it was more spooky and more um, just, it, it just felt like a Sam Hain record to me. So Glenn and I, you know, I would be like, I know what's going on. But the other two guys were like, why are we going this way when we just sold, you know, you know, gold record on this fucking thing? Why, why are we going back? Right. You know, but that, I think that was just the way it was with Glenn. I could be wrong, but it seemed that way to me. So I think it was probably the same way in Sam Hain, you know, that, the, the November record was probably like the best one at the time, and we were, you know, we were going to do another record, um, but you know everything changed at that point, and the demos we had, you know, stayed on the shelf for a long time. But, right. You know. Well, Sam Hain uh, kind of dissolves. Um, uh, London and and Pete Damien, they, you know, they're gone. We pick up Chuck and we pick up uh, John Christ. The, obviously, the band—it's a quantum leap, you know—from November Coming Fire to the the first Danzig record. It's—I uh, I, don't—I don't want to say that the, any of the earlier material before the first Danzig album pales in comparison, but it's just a completely different beast. Obviously, we have a, a big player like Rick Rubin gets involved, you know, with, with Def Jam, American, that sort of thing. What? 
what's the what's the major impetus to to that big of a change at that time? What what was the what was the driving factor behind everything? There was a whole bunch of stuff, but you got to remember that's a couple of years later. You know, I mean, like that's like two years later before the first standard record comes out. So that's a pretty good amount of time for you to uh, continue to develop. Um, other influences come in that maybe weren't apparent um, in the other bands, like you know, like say like Black Sabbath. You know, Glenn was always a Sabbath fan, um, but probably wasn't right for you know, the other bands or whatever. So now we have a metal guitar player <clears throat> who, who grew up on Iron Maiden and Judas Priest and mm-hmm. Ted Nugent. And, you know, then we have Chuck Biscuits who can play pretty much anything that you just say, ah, how about a beat like this or whatever? Oh, yeah, you know, no problem. And John could just play seven different versions of whatever you wanted. You could just say, well, pick the one you like, you know. So there was that, and then there was the Ruben influence. You know, um, he only had Slayer at the time, and he all his other work had been with rap artists and stuff. Um, so he wanted to branch out into more guitar and more metal type stuff, and you know, just I don't know he, if he liked it, he liked it. That's pretty much the way he probably right. still works. But uh, yeah, him and Glenn hung out a lot. There was it just I think Ruben wanted a super group, you know, like. That's why the Lucifuse, you know, the rip off the covers, the rip off of that first Doors album, you know, and um, the gatefold for the first record doesn't say anything on the cover. That's a Zeppelin thing. This has the skull, and the gatefold is like a '70s record, you know, where there's a big picture of the band and all this stuff. And so he wanted to sort of have like a some kind of group that would be around forever and be like a really important band. And he, I think that's what he saw especially Glenn's, you know, vocals and and the whole thing. He, he hated the whole image, you know, devil locks and the makeup and all that shit. He didn't want any of that, hmm. you know, which is where I figured I'm, I'm like, well, I'm next to go. <laughs> okay, well, we okay. Did all the, we did all, we auditioned like 25 guys or, I don't know, 20, 25, 30 guys for guitar, and I wore makeup and the whole deal the whole time. You know, when we were working out guys, I was just like, because I didn't know which direction we were going, because we were still calling the band Sam Hain. I figured it was just going to be the other guys in the band. Right. Let's 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 talk about that. There's a quote in your uh, Misery Obscura book. Quotes. Maybe it was because he could trust me. I was loyal, and he wasn't ready to give up that link to the past. Maybe it was because I made him laugh. I'm not quite sure. And you're talking about why you stayed on from the transition to Sam Hain to Danzig. You know, in hindsight, do you have any more insight into it? You know, do, do have you ever figured out why? Yeah, you forget I also had a car. That was the other thing. <laughs> by that time, yeah, well, by that time I had a car, you know, so I could um, I could take loans to the post office to the bank, you know, to pick up records to go into Caroline in the city or whatever. So that helped. Um, yeah, and all the other reasons. I was like, as far as I was concerned, second in command. You know, if, if Glenn wanted something done and, you know, he mentioned something or whatever, you know, I'd be like, okay, you know, uh, I'll take care of it. I'll do this. So, you know, try to try to influence the guys into, like, the way we wanted them to look and things. 
um, little, just little things that, you know, that no, nobody would notice, but, you know, they're important. But, yeah, I still don't know. I think it's just because we were friends, and I, I wasn't going, I want to play more bass, or I want to do this, or I got a song, and, you know, I mean, if I was a great bass player or a great songwriter, I might have done that stuff. But that's not what was required in any of the bands, you yeah. know? Um, so I think the the way I was and the fact that we were close just made it easier. He had somebody that was going to be on his side and that he could hang out and go to the movies with and stuff, you know? So okay. I think that's pretty much the way it worked. <laughs> what was the... You know, there's a lot of... there. As a fan, there's a lot of emphasis put on those first four albums. Um, the chemistry there is obviously undeniable. Um, I've heard you, uh, I've heard you quoted as saying, you know, and you just mentioned it a few minutes ago that uh, how the gods kill the third album is, you know, that's the one you gravitate towards. I'm a big Lucifuge fan, but I also like Four a lot. I mean, obviously, the quality of the players involved. Was there anything else there? Was there like this just kind of magic X factor sort of thing that you feel like made those four guys just fire on all four cylinders and was just this amazing machine of a band? Well, you know, anybody who knows, like when you get the right four or five guys in a room together, sometimes something great happens. And you don't really know why. You just know this is great. Let's see what happens and keep going. And when Chuck and John, because John showed up first, and he um, went in the studio and did some stuff for us, uh, some of the demos and other things. And then Chuck showed up, and we just started rehearsing. And these guys were so good um, that it took almost no time for us to get really comfortable with each other. And the songs just took on all this. You know, his new, his new life, even some of the old songs that we would play to fill out the sets and stuff. And that's what a lot of people, and I think Glenn doesn't realize, that it's not just guys playing the songs or playing the right notes. It's, it's what you do and the chemistry that, you know, you feed off each other. And that's, that's why when some major guy dies or leaves a band, a lot of bands break up. You know, like they couldn't replace this guy or that guy. So, yeah, it's a special thing. It's some sort of dynamic. It doesn't happen very often, but when it does, and if you're involved, you should be, consider yourself very lucky, which I definitely do, you know? Okay. When four, when the fourth album rolls around, you guys cut the album, there's some road trips uh, with, with the lineup still intact. Chuck leaves uh, for whatever reason. Uh, what's And Joey comes on. And Joey, Joey Castillo, an amazing drummer in his own right, do you feel like, did it, did it shake things up to, you know, in a negative way for you? Was it, was it a, were you, was it a neutral change for you, a good change or a bad change? Uh, well, since um, the record hadn't really come out yet, so we had this Metallica thing booked, and I think that's really the only thing we did uh, before the record came out with Chuck. Um, well, you know, losing a guy like Chuck, he had never been in a band except for DOA for as long as he was with us. Mm. And he would come up, you know, circle Jerry's Black Flag, he'd be in for like a year, maybe do a record, a tour or two, or whatever. 
and he, he was kind of a, like a hired gun. He would go from place to place, and it was usually either a personality thing or a money thing. And, you know, so eventually he was like, ah, you know, it's time to go. You know, it's not what I wanted, or it's not turning out the way I wanted or whatever. And then, you know, we auditioned another million drummers, and I think Joey was like the last one. And he had a really good, easygoing personality, really nice, smiled all the time, which was weird, you know. Um, <laughs> but I, I said, oh, so we're, we, we live in California, you know, this, there's nothing but Mexicans here. We should have a Mexican in the band. And I said, maybe that's a crowd we're missing. You know, that's what I thought, you know, um, half kidding. And, but he was, he was so good, and he was a good drummer. He played hard, and he was just trying to fill some really big shoes. Mm. And we didn't, we did, John and I worked with him for like a month straight, just the three of us, you know, telling him what we would do, what we, you know, this is, this is a dandy thing. We do this, you know, we do that. You know, this is how we're going to segue the songs. These are the songs we're going to focus on. And then once we get through, you know, this tour or whatever, we'll maybe add some new songs and like that. But it was just, it was just sad because Chuck was gone and Chuck and I were pretty close and we, we were the ones that caused all the trouble and, and, you know, got drunk and did things. And, and so Joey was, not quite like that, and by then John had stopped drinking, and you know Glenn didn't really want to hang out anymore. So it was, it was getting to where it was, you know, it was too bad, but it looks like it's going to end. You know, right? Was it a hard decision for you to make to walk away? Well, yeah, considering all the stuff I've already said, you know, about being friends, and but yeah, if if Chuck hadn't left the band, I probably would have stayed for as long as the four of us were together. Mm. Um, but once again, you know, Glenn wanted to go further underground, you know. Uh, maybe he thought the, the, the full record was, wasn't was quite as underground as he wanted to go, mm. and he was getting more into industrial-type stuff. And, and yeah, that's okay, but at my age, you know, I had, no, uh, I had no house, no car. I lived in an apartment with a girlfriend. I couldn't afford to have my own apartment, you know. So I was just like, I, why are we doing this when we should be going... You know, everybody kept saying, you're going to be the new Metallica with all this stuff. And I was like, yeah, I can handle that. And it just didn't seem like where he wanted to go was going to get us there, you know. And I was just like, yeah, it's not, it's not really fun anymore. So it was, it was kind of my thing. Like, if I'm not giving 100%, then I'm, I'm cheating the fans and, and everybody I'm involved with. So it's just not the way I roll, you know. So I was just like, you go on, you do what you want to do, and I'll go and do something else, you know? Do you remember what you did your first day out of the band? Oh, no, you don't think like that, you know? I mean, I had an, I was, I, I went back, I moved back to Jersey. A friend of mine who was our sound man for like eight years had a studio, a rehearsal studio. So I was just like, well, I want to, you know, work on writing songs and get better and learn how to play and sing and stuff, and I'll do my own band. So he and I worked on stuff, and there was a guy who worked at the studio, and I had this idea because I wanted to put out a record, but I wasn't sure about, you know, singing and what I was going to do, but I had this idea of, like, doing a soundtrack record and making the songs individual for, like, each movie. And this guy worked there, and he was a great musician, and all he did was play in his basement, so I asked him, 
you know, I want to put out a record. And it came out like, you know, 97, 98. So I was only out of the band for like a year or so. And just put that out, you know, and, and said, okay, well, what am I going to do after this? You know, so I didn't really think about it that much. I mean, I missed playing with the guys and I missed going on the road and being on a nice big bus and all that stuff. But, you know, it's just like, yeah, we have to, you have to keep moving. You know? Right. So there's 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 uneasy listening, obviously. Uh, the blood in the body. Uh, I think bad dream number thirteen came after that. Um, Spider cider, you know. To to me, those are all. There's a lot of variety in in that material alone. Um, even even without counting, uh, you put. I think you put out kind of country in two thousand nine. Um, yeah, I know. Yeah, it was a while ago. Even that being even a further departure. You know, there's there's just a lot of variety there in those first four albums that you put out. You know, is that just, you know, are you kind of schizophrenic in a in a musical kind of way where you just, I'm going to just, you know what, I'm going to pick up my guitar, I'm going to play whatever the hell I want to, I'm going to cut whatever record I want to. Well, um, like I said about songwriting, you know, and like as you get better, it becomes more exciting. And every day you're trying to write a better song than you wrote yesterday. And like I said, sometimes the songs don't fit for whatever project you might be working on. So, you know, like if I was doing Bad Dream, uh, at the same time, uh, even probably, think, probably earlier than that, I wrote a song that wound up again on Kind of Country, and that would have been like 10 years later at least. And I did another record after Bad Dream that was going to be more like sort of take Bad Dream and add kind of country and throw it together. And I worked on that for a year, and then my hard drive crashed as I moved to digital right. by then. And I lost the whole thing except for the basic tracks. And that's when I started doing the Spider Sider stuff because I had a bunch of punk rock songs that I never did anything with. And I also had a bunch of country songs I never did anything with because I was, you know, I can't put out country songs, you know. I was, I'm like, I'll save this in case somebody wants it. So it's basically, anybody will tell you, it's whatever mood you're in, you know, where you are at that point in your life. Like when I did Spider Cider, I was getting divorced and it's probably like my midlife crisis record. So I went back and, <laughs> and played a bunch of stuff like we used to play, you know, and stuff that I liked and so it just comes back to the reason kind of country seems like such a departure from the, the previous record is because before that was supposed to be another record, and it would have bridged the gap between those other ones and the country record, you know, but it did, you know. So the next the record I'm working on now is sort of a combination of the stuff that I lost and kind of country. So it's not going to be all country stuff, which I don't really think that stuff's that country. Um, so it's going to be, I've dug up a few tracks that I'm working on now, and it's it's, it's different. People will go, uh, be a little bit surprised, you know, that it's, uh, you know, like I'm not just going to do, like, say, Ray Charles and do a country western record and then next time the blues record and then do, <laughs> you know, something else. You know, I'm not at that point yet. So. I always think of uh, the band Ween with, uh, with that kind of kind of diversity. Those guys can turn at the drop of a dime. It's it's nuts. It's insane. Well, that also keeps you interested too, you know. And if your fans go along with it, and and I mean, as a as a record buying person and fans of other people, it's like okay, 
you know, he put out a new record. The last one was all right. It wasn't great, but I'll give you another shot. And sometimes you lose people, and sometimes you gain new people. Sure. Uh, it's, it, it, it's really, you know, you're just challenging people. Instead of putting out the same record year after year, which a lot of bands do, because that's what their fans already want, to me, it's just like the band will get bored, the listeners will be like, yeah, I got the first couple records, that's all I need, you know. So you got to keep doing whatever makes you happy and hope people will like it. And if they do, great. If they don't, so what, you know. Does it feel, is it, is it gratifying, you know what I mean? Is working on this stuff on your own and just kind of recording whatever comes, you know, out of your fingers and your mouth at that time, is it as gratifying as being sweaty and, you know, headbanging in front of 15, 20,000 people? Oh, no, it's not that. It's But the songwriting part definitely is, you know, because, like, there's, got, there's a point I, most people get to uh, that write a lot of songs where you, where you, like, record a demo or record this song and go, hey, I think I've been good at this, you know. <laughs> this is a song that I haven't written before, and it's like a benchmark or a warm-up. And then you go, okay, and it might move you into a different direction, and then you write another song, you're like, oh, before you know it, you got a couple of the sort of, you know, um, fit together thematically or musically or whatever. So that's very, um, that's, that, that's, that's, something that you know makes you excited but yeah i miss playing in front of a lot of people but of course i can't headbang like i used to my right. back is too messed up i can't travel as much you know and you know at this point in my life i can't get back in a van and go you know it's just it's just not i mean, i know how i am but yeah i definitely miss that and this record i'm going to record with a bunch of different people so cool. it's going to be a band situation i'm not just going to play everything you know, and the only reason I did that on the other records is because I was I couldn't get anybody else to play with. You know? So it's amazing. I think uh, creativity sometimes, when it's born out of necessity, is one of the most interesting things. As a as a fan of art and music and things like that, it creates some cool stuff. Yeah, but there's still nothing like being in a room with, with a bunch of people and and seeing what happens because. Songs will start out like a slow ballad, and they'll turn out to be a fast song, or there'll be a you know rearrangement or something just because somebody said, "Hey, what about this?" And that's where the magic shit happens, right. you know. And there's something you might not have thought of, you know. That's why you you would say take a guy like John and say, "Well, this is what I'm hearing in my head." You know, what are you hearing when when I play it or whatever? And well, you could do this, you could do that. Could do this. Oh, shit, I never thought that, you know. So mm-hmm. now the song takes on a whole other life, you know. So that's the best thing. It's like when you have a problem and you go to your best friend or somebody and say, ah, I got this girl, she's doing this and doing that. And you know, well, what do you do? What would you do? And then they say something you might never have thought of. So that's the whole thing. You know, it's, collaboration is awesome when it's when it's uh, good for the, for the whole band, you know. Right. For the song. I want to... I want to go back to Sam Hain. Um and as, mm-hmm. as long as you're okay talking about it. Um, no, why not? It's part of my thing, you know, part of my uh, resume. The the you're you're absent for the for the 1999 reunion and uh, the subsequent you know legacy shows and, and the Sam, other 15 reunions. Yeah, the other yeah. How many long? <laughs> 
Um, are you okay talking about it? Do you, you know, why, why weren't you there? Oh, I could go back to the very beginning when um, Steve was, you called me or I called me a few times. I was still in Jersey, I think, and um, said that they were going to do it. I wanted to do it. And from what I can remember, because my, my stance has always been, yeah, if you get Pete, I might do it, you know. Um, and it just, it just, I don't remember, it just didn't work out, or like Pete couldn't do it. And I don't, see, I, I, I know that he was already busy, you know, playing with Iggy. Yeah. I, you know, if he was around, he might have done it. Um, but it just, it didn't work out. And since then, because <clears throat> Steve told me, he said, I'll never do it without you. That's what he said. So when he went and did it without me, that kind of, you know, didn't didn't sit too well with me. So the reason that they they said recently, the reason I'm not welcome there is because I don't get along with Steve in London. You know, that's and I was just like, uh, okay. So I reached out to Steve. I said, look, Steve, it's been a long time. I don't let's you know let's maybe we're not friends anymore, but let's not be enemies. And I never heard back from. Him. So, you know, but I still wouldn't do it anyway. You know, I'm not getting up there at my age. I'm not cutting my hair. I'm not dyeing my hair. I'm not putting blood on my head. It's a fucking 50 years old and trying to act like I'm 20. You know, that's just not the way I am. It was jarring uh, to be a fan at that time. You know, to it was exciting. I was 19 years old in 1999 and uh, I was playing in bands too. And I was like, holy shit, is Sam Haynes going to start playing some shows? And it was jarring to be a fan. Have you have you had that reaction from the fan community? You know, when people talk to you, you know about whatever. Do do you feel like you know? I'm sorry, I couldn't do it. It just didn't happen. Or is it you know? Eh, just kind of brush it off as another day at the office sort of thing. Well, yeah, I get that like every day or whenever the next reunion comes around. You know, are you going to do it? You know. They say, oh, it's, it says in the thing, original members. I said, yeah, Glenn and Steve, That's a, those are the original members. It's, you know, people are, it never says, you know, founding members. It never says, you know, who's going to be there. It just says original members, which is not a lot, but it's a little misleading. Hmm. And I just say, um, yeah, you know, I'm not into doing it. They didn't, want, they didn't want me to. I wouldn't do it anyway. And from what I heard, you know, especially lately, because now it's like a, I've seen some pictures, and it's like you think backdrop and on a big stage and all this stuff. And I'm like, well, it seems like they're doing a good job. You know, I said, what do they need me for? You know? <laughs> you know? So I don't care. It's fine. You know? It's, I think Glenn probably has a problem with Jerry doing his version of The Misfit. But, you know, you got Glenn and Steve in London, you know, whoever's playing guitar, some, whoever they get. They seem to be doing, doing the songs of justice, and the fans like it, so... You know, I'm not complaining about it. <laughs> okay. At this point, you know, your eerie eerie is in his he's reached his fifth decade of his life. What what do you feel like when when I call it a day, what what do you want what do you want the legacy to be? Oh, I don't know. Plus I done, I you know, put put out a book, put out another book, got all the paintings I've been painting probably since ninety nine full time. Sure. So I've got these other things that I do. So I figure by the time it's all said and done, it'll be like this big body of work of all this stuff that I've done creatively, and then people can look at it that way. You know, um, I don't really think about it. I just keep doing what I'm doing, 
and whether people will buy it or not, I don't really care, you know, because I'm going to do it anyway. And, like, when you're a painter, you paint because you have to paint, you know. So being a musician, it's the same way. If you write songs or whatever, you just you do it anyway. They might not go anywhere or do anything, but you still have to get up and the songs just come out, the paintings come out, you know, go out and take photos, do whatever. It just, it just happens. So I'm not really that concerned. I'm in a great position. If I was like Paul McCartney, do you think Paul McCartney cares if he sells any records? No. <laughs> because he doesn't need to. Right. And when you're poor and you don't sell any records, you're in the same boat as you were yesterday because you didn't sell any records then either. So it doesn't really matter. You just do what you do. And uh, people could take it or leave it, you know. Okay. Like a, a renaissance man, right? Yeah, I guess. Okay. My dad, my father would say jack of all trades. <laughs> yeah, my jerk of all trades is what my dad would say. That's awesome. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Erie, we're, uh, we're coming up on an hour, man, and I think, uh, I think we've covered everything, uh, you know, the awesome, we've covered a lot of stuff, actually. Um, you mentioned earlier that Misery Obscura, you're, you're trying to get it to go to print again, so that, uh, you know, is, it's out of, it's out of print right now, right? Yeah, the, uh, the, the, the other million fans that don't even know it exists, you know, okay. so that's, that's the publisher's fault, <laughs> you know. So, like, people go, oh, everybody must have this. I'm like, no, they don't. <laughs> you know? I, I, look at my, um, I look at my copy on a, probably on a weekly basis, man. I, that book is phenomenal. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, well, the, the next one's going to be most, mostly just the photos. You know, it's not going to be like, I already told the story, so it's going to be just the photos in, like, really pristine condition. You know, same size book, not too big but maybe 200 pages, but just, just the photos and where they were taken, maybe little blurbs about it, but not so much focusing on the whole story. It's just going to be about the photos, and I think people will really dig that too, you know, because you can't get them in, like, this perfect condition, you know, so that'll be good. And hopefully we're trying to get this documentary out, which is based on my book and all that stuff, and that's been a real pain. But, um, you know, so there's a bunch of stuff there's, probably wind up coming out at the same time you know that's uh that's that's what i was thinking it'd be awesome to uh to just push them both at once i think uh we're going with misery perfectum was that we went with another yeah, Latin. That's, that's what the next book is going to be called and okay. that's why i figured i called it the movie that cool i think it sounds exciting man um i'm i'm foaming at the mouth for it so okay yeah, if we can if we can get through all the red tape and all the all the bullshit you know we'll uh We'll get it out, you know, because uh, I have all the, I've got all the footage and I've got all the photos and all that stuff. So, you know, I'm, and I, what am I going to do? Sit on it and, you know, look at it. I never watch that stuff. I, I barely look at the pictures unless I'm working on them, you know, for something. So everybody else, you know, they should have it, you know. Sure. It's an awesome document. Okay. Erie, thanks for being on the show, man. Hey, no problem. You've been listening to Music the Lifeblood. Find us to listen and download for free at Music the Lifeblood at Podomatic.com and the iTunes Store in the podcast section. Leave us your comments, ratings, and reviews, and find us on Facebook. We're going nowhere, and that's just fine.